Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Today on the show, I have Simon Borg Olivier, who is a physiotherapist and yoga teacher with over three decades of experience. He has studied with all of the great yoga teachers that are well known today in the West, really from whom Western yoga came, which would be Patabi Joyce, BKS Ayengar, and Deskachar. And Simon had the privilege of studying with all of them. And he's also studied Qigong quite intensively and has his yoga practice has evolved in a way where he's really integrated yoga with modern principles of physiotherapy, as well as integrating yoga with Qigong and Chinese medicine. And so Simon is a perfect guest to have on the show because I'm always interested in trying to do kind of a comparative analysis of Eastern and Western ways of looking at the world and kind of figure out ways to, to integrate the best of both. And, and Simon is someone who is ideally suited for that. He actually started out as a lecturer in molecular biology at the University of Sydney out of his undergrad. So, And then he got into yoga after that. So he really has a very strong background as a scientist. And then when he later came back and did another degree in physiotherapy after studying yoga for a long time, he really has a not only, you know, experience studying these traditions in India, but he has a very deep scientific background and training in physiotherapy. And so he's very grounded in both traditions and is able to integrate the two in a way that is thoughtful and coherent and not subject to a lot of the woo-woo, which sometimes surround some of these discussions or approaches. And I should also add on a personal note, I've had the privilege of studying with Simon. I know Simon because I first know about him because I heard my teachers in Bangkok, who were excellent teachers, people like Adrian Cox, who I had on this show. He was the first guest. And another one of my teachers, Sarissa, talked about how exceptional Simon was. So I started doing his online courses. And then eventually I did my second 200-hour yoga teacher training with Simon in Goa and was a really phenomenal month. I can't even begin to say how much I learned. It completely changed my practice and and really was a had a very lasting impact that I'm still trying to work through and make sense a lot of the things that Simon taught me today. So is definitely someone I wanted to have on the show and I'm, I'm finally glad that almost a year into the podcast finally managed to make that happen. So let me give you just a little bit of background on Simon before I cut to our conversation. Simon Borg-Olivier is the co-founder and owner of Yoga Synergy and has over 33 years experience teaching yoga, inspiring people all over the world. He co-founded Yoga Synergy, a studio in Sydney, Australia with his business partner, Bianca Matchless. And they have three studios, I believe, in Sydney today. And they also, uh, both Bianca and Simon, teach workshops around Australia. And Simon teaches all over the world. So I would strongly encourage people to 
check out the yogasynergy.com website to get a feel for the style of yoga because it I know there are so many different brands of yoga and people are always trying to do something else to market, but this is really a innovative style of yoga and one that is very grounded, like I said, I think in, in science and anatomy and physiotherapy and, and um, very accessible to all different types of people and body types, which is a, a big approach and value of Simon and Bianca is making it more accessible. So strongly encourage people to check out yogasynergy.com. They have a lot of really great online courses. Their yoga, anatomy, and physiotherapy course is extremely valuable and really a bargain, I think, for what you pay for it. I receive no commission whatsoever for saying this. I'm just genuinely strong and strongly endorsing it out of my own experience. And if you're also interested, based on what you hear with Simon and studying with him, you can learn more about his workshops from the yogasenergy.com website or from his personal website, simonborgolivier.com. And I'll leave it there with the bio and background because he also gives us a bit of his background in our conversation to kick things off. So thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting it on Patreon and sharing it on your social media platforms. Writing a quick review on iTunes takes two minutes, but can be a real big help in terms of building up the profile of the show and helping us to reach more listeners who are interested in these topics. And yeah, I guess that's all I would say. So now I I would say for now, thank you so much for listening and hope you enjoy my conversation with Simon Borg Olivier. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. So, I'd love to start out with just, you know, and I've read a little bit about your bio in the introduction, but I thought we could start with you just giving a sort of your thesis, you know, just your introduction to what the yoga synergy system is that you and Bianca have developed. And then once we've done that, I'd love to backtrack and talk about, you know, the journey to how you got to this point. Okay, fantastic. All right. Well, the yoga synergy system, I believe, is an understanding of the traditional exercise forms, or this, we could call them not just exercise forms, the traditional posture, movement, breathing, and mental control systems coming from the different traditional cultures in the world today. And primarily, they include India, China, Japan, but I've also had influences from Tibet. I've also had influences over the years to help in my understanding from Australian Aborigines and South American, North American, African, and Filipino, these sort of people. So it's basically an understanding of traditional posture, movement, breathing, and mental control, but how we apply that to the modern body. And that's been the thing that I've been most interested in doing it. How can we teach traditional exercise systems to the modern body, which is so different to the traditional body? And maybe now I have to clarify what I mean by modern body and traditional body. Is that okay? Yeah, please say more about that. 
Okay, so the modern body is different to the traditional body because the traditional body, when I say traditional body, I'm talking about the hypothetical person who, you know, exists less and less in the modern world now today, who never really goes in buses, trains, sits on chairs, etc. Their main form of locomotion will be walking or jogging or running, but mainly walking. They would be carrying things maybe on their head, a lot of them do, around the world, not just India. They would be, as opposed to sort of carrying things, say, on one shoulder or picking things up with one hand, much more ambidextrous, I believe, much more symmetrical. And also sitting cross-legged on the floor, squatting and kneeling, much more than most Westerners would do. When you sit cross-legged, you can't move to left and right as easily uh, if your spine's not very flexible. Whereas if you kneel or if you sit in a chair, when you reach to the left or reach to the right, rather than the spine doing lateral flexion, which is, you know, side bending and twisting, the hips will just lift up. So someone who sits in a chair or kneels, when they reach to left or right, the spine doesn't move much. But if you sit cross-legged and you reach to left or right, say at a dinner table, to reach for the salt or pass the pepper to another family member, your spine will become much more mobile. I think it's an important point because many people think that if you sit cross-legged, your hips are going to get more open. But actually, regular sitting cross-legged over a lifetime will facilitate a lot more spinal mobility, and that's important. The sort of things that have really upset the Western body will be chronic sitting in chairs where the hip flexors are very short, so the front of the hips, what we sometimes call the groins, become very tense and compressed. And primarily the psoas is left in a very shortened position and the gluteal muscles or the buttocks muscles are kept over-lengthened and become much weaker. And then this predisposes a person who's been sitting for typically 5 to 15 hours a day when you take into account the time sitting on chairs, eating, going to the toilet, driving, working, etc. Minimum 5 hours for the average person, but as much as 15 hours for many people, according to physiotherapy studies. So they end up with very tight hip flexors, very weak hip extensors, and because of the tightness of the hip flexors, when a person stands up, the lumbar spine is pulled into extension, meaning that the lower back becomes very, very compressed. And a person with a compressed lower back may not always complain about lower back pain, but you can test whether their lower back is compressed by asking them simply to shorten the back of their spine in extension. So when you bend backwards, and, you know, a typical backward bend in, that is sometimes called in yoga back bending or spinal extension. As I've said to you before, there are two main ways of doing it. You can either bend backwards by lengthening the front of the body, or you can bend backward by shortening the back of the body. And neither is wrong nor right. A healthy person should be able to do both. But generally, if you ask the average modern-bodied, Western-bodied person to bend backwards in a way that their sitting bones lift up and back and the shoulders pull back and down from a standing position. This will shorten the back of their body and generally gives them pain or discomfort 
around the L5-S1 region of the lower back, which is below the level of the top of the hips. Now, a child usually will have no pain. Natural-bodied people will have no pain. In fact, a typical African dancer, assuming they've got a natural body, they will actually put that position as one of their dance moves and never consider it to be painful. It's just a, a position. And, you know, if someone who's they doing uh, regular gymnastics or gymnastic-like yoga, including the standing drop back into Urdhva standing drop back to the floor back arch, you have to shorten the back of the body. I used to do this Every week we do 108 of these every week with BKS Iyengar, and I never had any problem in my lower back. But most people, when they attempt it, will feel discomfort. And so this suggests that most people have a problem in their lower back. And the only reason that this will be so major, I believe, is because of chronic compression of the front of the hips, over-stretching of the buttocks muscles and over-tensing and over-compressing of the lower back as a result of this uh, chronic sitting position. I think partly as a result of this, you get a compensatory and related similar problem in the neck. And for many people, if you ask them to extend the neck or to simply lift their chin up, many people feel fine if they make the front of the neck longer, but many people will not feel fine if you ask them to move the throat backward and the head drop back. Nine out of 10 people will feel neck pain, but they shouldn't. So my observation after observing many thousands of people and surveying them is that nine-tenths of the modern population have got underlying lower back problems around L5-S1 predominantly, and nine out of 10 normal people have got underlying neck problems around the middle of the cervical spine. Similarly, many people have got very stiff hips so they can barely externally rotate or internally rotate and also very tight front of hips very weak back of hips which means that even if you don't get them to do yoga um, if you do get them to do yoga and you make them do cross-legged or lotus the stiff hips will probably cause knee pain as you try and force the knees into a position like lotus when the thighs cannot turn out of the hips, you overstress the knee joint. But even if you don't get people to do that, many people's overtension of the front of the hips and overlaxity in the back of the hips predisposes them to hip joint problems. And the normal Western body tends to have a frequency of about one in every two people over the age of 40 or 50, depending on the studies you read being predisposed to the type of hip problems that in these days would make most doctors say you should have a hip replacement. One in every two people over the age of 50 would probably do better with a hip replacement. And that's not good results, <laughs> really. And uh, what I tried to do, what Bianca tried to do, is to try and develop a system of posture, movement, breathing, and mental control, which are the things you can control in the body that, along with maybe eating to control for yourself, and do them in a way which helps people's body, their life, but also in a way which is done with the methodology that's used in traditional systems, but taking into account the problems of the Western body. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. And so there are many tricks that I've learned 
probably the most important ones, the use of active movement and the use of moving primarily from the core of the body rather than locking the core, and a relearning of natural breathing and movement which is fluid in a real way. And I can summarize those things or reiterate them and maybe explain them a bit better if that's okay. Could I? Yeah, absolutely, Simon. So when I say active movement, I mean a movement which is safe for a a person or a posture which is safe uh, is generally one where if you ask the person to do a particular position, they could do it without the help of external forces, such as one limb pulling another limb into position or gravity allowing your body to drop into a particular position or momentum being able to throw the body into a particular position. So, for example, if you're sitting on the floor and you need to use your hands to put the legs into lotus position, that's using an external force, whereas a traditional bodied person someone who's healthy and naturally flexible, say from sitting cross-legged all their life and never sitting on chairs, buses, trains, etc., will be able to fold their legs into lotus while sitting on the floor without using their hands. In exactly the same way, we cross our arms without using additional help. And that's what can be called active movement. If you had to use your arms, then you're basically forcing your legs into a place which the brain and the arms want, but the knees and the hips might not want. And that will cause possibly some stress, both physically, which could damage the joints, and also, I believe, physiologically, which would cause a fight-or-fight response or a stress response that can have long-term negative impact. Then the other thing I say is you should avoid in the beginning when you're doing posture, movement, and, and things like this, is using the assistance of external forces such as gravity or momentum. And maybe a good uh, example that people might understand for this would be a healthy person when it comes to the act of squatting, something which most traditional cultures will do for daily defecation, which is obviously an important thing. And incidentally, defecation has been shown to work much better. The bowels work much better if you defecate squatting. So it's a good thing to do. Squatting is a healthy thing to do. But many people in the West cannot squat. And if they do get into the position, usually their knees and their hips are not really strong enough to allow the position to be done safely. So they might squat halfway and get their hips maybe the same height as their knees, and then they will fall the rest of the way. So gravity will allow them to fall into the position, but they can't make a controlled lowering to the floor. And when you do this, then you increase the risk of injury because you can overstretch the knee extensors and the hip extensors perhaps, and they can tear and damage the knee, say. And then when a person is in a squat, which they could not lower into, but they had to fall into, then to stand up. Often they use their arms and a little bit of ankle work to throw themselves back up to standing with a bit of a jerky sort of spring. And that means then that they also are not controlling. It's more momentum that's getting them to get up into the position. You know, similarly, people use momentum to throw their bodies up into a shoulder stand or a headstand or a handstand, 
Whereas if these positions are lifted slowly into, the body's inner control mechanisms stimulate neurological effects which facilitate a much better outcome. Now, when I say that in English, what I'm saying is if you use your muscles to come into a position, the position will not feel like it's stretching you, yet it will make you flexible. It will not feel like it's tense, but you will get stronger. And well, you're less likely to feel tense, but still get stronger. And you're also more likely to promote adequate blood flow and get warm in a cold room without making your heart race. So active movements, I believe, are the way that if you teach positions to a Western body, if you teach them first a movement actively, they're less likely to overstretch, but they're more likely to get flexible. They're less likely to feel tense, but they're more able to get strong while feeling relaxed. They're less likely to promote a sympathetic nervous system over commitment, which means then that they can stay relaxed and calm on the inside while getting warm, their heart not racing and blood flowing. And you can usually teach, say, for exercise without having to overthink it. Just show them and make them do it actively. Does that make sense? It's this sort of thing I explain much better if I show people, but to say it like that, oh, of course. I hope it doesn't yeah. sound It's a limitation of, yes. of the podcast format yes. in this respect. I mean, and I'll certainly direct people to your website and your videos where they can see this, but there is so much, I think, where the conversation does really allow us to get to some important points. And I want to ask you to kind of sketch out this idea a little bit of why it's so particularly important for people with the modern body, which is, i.e., all of us, you know, in a Western yoga studio, to be using things like active movements. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could start perhaps by talking about what you started to notice with your students when you opened up a yoga studio in Sydney, you know, after you'd been studying with Iyengar and Patabi Joyce, but you started to notice that the system that you'd learned from them, which you loved, it was wonderful that it, it, a lot of people were having problems. A lot of Australians, a lot of people with the modern body were having problems. And I, I'm wondering if you could sketch out a little bit more of what specifically and why. I think there were two things in particular that made me appreciate the need for active movement and how they were really part of the traditional system that was being lost in the West. Maybe three things. One of them was when I was with Iyengar, and this is the mid-80s, every class, being fairly advanced classes, would pretty much start with headstand. And certainly his book, Light on Yoga, listed a bunch of practices which were, you know, done in their third year, apparently. This is, you know, level three practice, but they all start with headstand. And one of the first variations in headstand was a headstand twist. And so you're standing on your head and you have to twist the body to the left, twist it to the right, axial rotation of the spine. Now, in a headstand, the only muscles you can use to do this, the only force you can use is your core muscles. And these are not the core muscles that most people use. These are the muscles which rotate the spine. They're attached to the spine and the muscles which rotate at the abdominal and chest region, which are your internal and external oblique muscles. And so I learned to twist actively. And it occurred to me then that when Bianca and I started to teach headstand, 
to people, which in those days I used to teach more. Now I teach a lot less because I realized that it, you know many years ago that it's not that good for most people who live in the West who never have carried things on their head, for example. When I teach people twisting, I make them stand up and twist without using their hands, actually twist actively. And sometimes I think in the classes you've been with me in the simple yoga synergy fundamental sequence, we put our hands in, a, in an ulnar nerve tensioning position, which resembles an upside down headstand, and then we turn. And that initially came from my appreciation of Iyengar doing his twists actively in headstand. And that was probably one of the first parts of the active movement that Bianca and I introduced then. We put it at the end of our sequences when we do the finishing cross-legged twists. And as years went on, I started to add more active movement. And I think the next leap came when I was in uh, northern India with Bianca in the early 1990s, where we were on top of a hill being introduced to a very famous yogi on the hill. And I think I told you this story once, where the yogi on the hill who could not speak English had heard from the guest who had brought us there that Bianca and I did yoga. So he said to me, do I do yoga? Can you? Can I show him some yoga? So I proudly in my you know, earlier years showed him a scorpion, where I proudly put my feet onto my head in a back arch, balancing on my arms. He clapped. And I felt very proud. And then he said, yes, yes, but can you do lotus position? He says, Deko Padmasana in his local dialect. And so I you know, sat on the floor, put my legs into lotus using my hands, sat up straight, and he laughed. And I couldn't understand why he was laughing. And at the time, he had a spoon in one hand and a cup in the other, making a cup of tea for us. And without letting go of the spoon or cup, he put both his legs in lotus undid his legs, folded them the other side lotus, undid his legs, put one leg behind his head, other leg behind his head, one foot under the armpit, other foot under the armpit, then folded his legs and finished in all sorts of positions, finishing in Kandasana, where the soles of the feet are on the chest, knees on the floor, without once letting go of the spoon or the cup. And I, I was dumbfounded that such a thing was possible and realized that all of the positions I'd been doing, especially with my hips, had been quite forced then I realized that active movement and the postures that he was doing were never forced asanas. Because sometimes people think that hatha, which means force, means forcing yourself into positions, which is obviously not the case. But what he was using was the inner forces derived from his own muscular effort, and that put him into different positions. And I realized the power of this and started to explore the neuromuscular implications of which there are many, because it triggers reflexes, which actually create a much more natural physiological state in the body, a much more parasympathetic state in the body, meaning much more calming, much better for the immune system, digestive system, reproductive system. But if you use external forces to pull yourself into position, like a hand pulling a limb, like in lotus position most people do, or pulling the leg behind the head with your hand, or throwing your legs up to a shoulder stand or handstand, as many people do in the West, or dropping your body into a forward bend, as many people do with forward bends, with gravity, 
then you trigger a stretch reflex. And that stretch reflex initiates a sympathetic nervous system output, meaning you enter a state temporarily, especially on the subconscious level, of a state of flight or fight, where the state of flight or fight, the um, nervous system switches to a protective mode where you turn off all non-essential functions for flight or fight. You turn off your immune system, digestive system, reproductive system, and you also enter a place where subconsciously the emotions are those of flight or fight, the emotions becoming fear, anger, aggression, lack of safety, lack of trust. Of course, on the conscious mind, if you're doing this, your conscious mind is thinking yoga class or stretching exercise. But studies suggest that the unconscious mind's computer-like capability is, if it were a computer, one million times the capability of the conscious mind. So it's very difficult for the unconscious to be dominated by the conscious mind. So even if you think you're just doing a stretching exercise, unconsciously, if the body perceives stretch coming from a stretch reflex because you moved your body into a position using an external force, the body thinks it's been imposed upon. Whereas if you do it with your own active movements, your own muscles, the body thinks you want to do it. You chose it. It's something which you chose, doesn't require threat, doesn't impose threat. So I think these were two important features, Iyengar and the Yogi on the Hill. And then another third important link that I got was in the mid-80s, I practiced Malakam, which is translated to be the wrestler's pole in which in India, I was shown how to climb on a pole and do various yoga postures. For them, of course, it was them practicing wrestling. And so when you wrestle with a real partner, for example, in judo or jujitsu, you might grab them by the neck and throw them over your shoulders or grab them by the back and throw them over your back. But if you haven't got a partner in India, they practice using a pole, a big wooden pole, which is about three meters in height. It's wooden and it's about maybe, I think you talk in inches, so it'll be what, about say 10 inches diameter at the base, maybe about three inches diameter at its top. And you will hold the pole with your arms or with your legs and then lift the rest of your body up into the pole. So you might lift yourself into what looks like Pashimottanasana, the forward bend, but it's done with your core muscles. In fact, almost every position is being done against the flow of gravity, meaning a forward bend is not your chest falling onto your thighs, but your thighs squeezing together as opposed to falling together, and then using your core or your abdominal or trunk muscles to move yourself into various positions. It's pretty much totally active movement to get you in and out of positions. And doing this, I realized that most of the practice was not about flexibility, but about a balance between strength and active movement, which would create strength, flexibility, and fitness at the same time. And this was another big influence for the reasons why I used uh, active movement. Does that resonate a bit now? That definitely does, yeah. So these things then, Bianca and I started to introduce into pretty much every position. And now I teach not only active movement to come into pretty much every position, 
but also when you're in the positions and you're doing what in the West we sometimes call resistance exercise, where one muscle is pulling to escape from a position or to try and resist against another part of the body, one arm pulling against a leg, for example, in a twist, or grabbing your knees and pulling to the chest. You resist, but that resistance is also done in an active way. And the other things that come with this, which are the things that I believe would be happening in the natural body, is that the movements are initiated not from the actual joint that you're doing the active movement from, but the active movement is initiated from the core. And the core is often a misunderstood word in the West. The core is equivalent to what in China probably is the one that understands the core uh, in a way where most Westerners have heard it. And in China, they call it the Dantian. The Dantian is the place where all movement starts. In India, this is called the Kanda. And they say the Kanda, which is a word not often heard in modern Western yoga, but the Kanda is described in most texts as being the root of 72,000 nadis or subtle channels. Now, the way it's described is that it locates the Kanda the same place as the Dantian in China, which is the same place as the center of what's called the Hara in India. But the Hara in India is a large sphere, you know, or a large section, which relates to the whole abdominal and lower back region. Whereas in Japanese culture, the center of the Hara is called the Tanden. And the Tanden, the center of the Hara, relates to Dantian in China, which is the Kanda in India, which in Korea is called Dandion, I think, Dandion, and the right name is pronounced. But all of this relates to the enteric nervous system in the West. It's the enteric nervous system is a plexus of nerves, which probably only been really understood in the last 20 or 30 years in the West. And it relates to that idea of the Kanda being the route to 72,000 nadis or subtle channels. In the West, we talk about the enteric nervous system being a plexus of nerves that has so much nervous tissue, it's actually more nervous tissue than the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems combined. It is part of the autonomic nervous system, which also sympathetic and parasympathetic are part of. It's a third, much larger part of the autonomic nervous system than sympathetic or parasympathetic. And it's actually more nervous tissue than it is in the spinal cord. It's actually more nervous tissue in this region wrapped around the intestines and the abdomen than a cat's brain. And we know that cats are smart. So a plexus of nerves bigger than a cat's brain inside your gut, inside the region of abdomen, really this may be the source and the physical reality of when someone says, I've got a good gut feeling about this. It totally maps onto what I've heard about. I've heard that there's a very large number of dopamine receptors as well Yes, in the yes. abdomen. Yes, it's like it's like there's a nerve, there's a system of nerves there, but also there's a whole neurotransmitter system there as well. 
So, and the neurotransmitters, more and more they're finding out, are synonymous with hormones and immunotransmitters. So for a long time, it was thought that we had neurotransmitters, which were part of the nervous system, and hormones, which were part of the endocrine system. But more and more now, it's realized that they have dual functions, that even things like estrogen and insulin, which are thought commonly as hormones, actually act as neurotransmitters in the brain. And so we know that insulin and estrogen, for example, exists in the region of the abdomen, but they've probably got neurotransmitter function there as well in that abdominal region. And so we're talking about the receptors for neurotransmitters, the receptors for hormones and nerve plexes all existing as like a information processing and relaying center in your lower abdomen. And this in India was called the Kanda or the region at its center is called the Kanda. In Japan, it's called the Tanden. The region around it is called the Hara in Japan. And so the the region around the Kanda in India is below it is called Swadhisthana Chakra. Just above it is called Manipura Chakra. Essentially, the external location of those two chakras or energy centers is the Swadhisthana chakra, the front of it relates to the pubic bone. The front of Manipura chakra relates to the navel. The back of Manipura chakra relates to the level of the top of the hips. And the back of Swadhisthana chakra relates to the sacrum. But the back of the Kanda relates to the L4, L5 region, which for many people is the bit that squashes most when they stand up and arch their back. It's the region that became most squashed from the sitting lifestyle and the overtension in the front of the hips. So in other words, the sitting lifestyle has pretty much destroyed the access to the kanda or the core, and this region is becoming more and more compressed with daily life, and it's often made worse in the way most people attempt to do yoga if they try and do what the traditional yogis used to do in their postures, if the Western body just copies them, they often squash the core or the kanda more and just end up with lower back pain. Hence, many people doing yoga in the modern world end up with lower back pain. Can I ask you, so what did these people from India and China who mapped out these esoteric systems like chakras and meridians you know, obviously, there's a lot of things that they didn't know without the precision and of modern science and the technologies to observe them, but they intuitively understood something. And can you, for people who in the audience who are perhaps receptive to what you're saying, but they're maybe they are looking to kind of bridge that gap between, you know, these Eastern systems, traditional systems and modern science, which I know your system does so well, which is part of why I wanted to have you on the show. What is sort of the missing gap there? What did these people kind of understand intuitively about our subtle body, the anatomy, the way energy flows in the body? Well, for a start, if you have a natural body, energy flows a lot better in the first place. And also, if you move naturally and come into these positions in a natural way, you are not going to have pain. Very little chance of injuring yourself. But if you've got an unnatural body and you move with external forces into positions which resemble yoga postures, 
you're more likely to block energy to actually cause pain around the region which we can call the kanda or the core, especially in the lower back. Whereas the person who attempts yoga and does not have a lower back problem, which is only one in 10, is more likely to practice and continue their practice in a way where they'll start to get progress. But if the average person who tends to be compressed in their lower back begins a practice and then suddenly starts to find it hurts, they stop practicing. And you don't get good at anything if you stop. So someone who's got a natural body and who begins yoga is more likely to explore it in depth because they don't get pain when they do it. They're more likely to get good feelings. That may be one reason. Does that answer the question a little bit? It does. It raises another one, though, which is what do those of us who live in the modern world and are sitting in chairs, you know, what then is the next best thing that we can do in terms of how to practice? Well, the next best thing on a very simple level is don't do things that hurt while you practice. And then when you do practice, move actively and move from your core. And move from your core means that if you wish to get your arm to move from the right side of your body to the left side of your body, move your core, which is the region between the pubic bone and the navel, make that rotate to the left first. If you wish to lift your chin up, then before your chin goes up, move the core, which is the region between the navel and the pubic bone, to move forward and up first. This will facilitate the action. And anyone in the audience could perhaps try this. And the simple exercise is if you lift your chin up, it might feel okay. But if you make your throat move forward and up, it will usually feel better. And if you move your belly forward, outward, and then upward, lifting the chin is easier. But then if you now try, pull your belly inwards and then lift your chin up, the neck movement is restricted and usually feels less comfortable for nine out of 10 people. And if you're one of those nine out of 10 people trying this, you'll experience that. If you're one of the few people, one in 10, who has no neck problems in the modern world, then lifting your chin up may not feel as easy to do. It will feel probably just as easy to do if your tummy is pulled in or pulled out. But uh, there's many examples which I can show individuals about how if you move from the core, it's a lot more powerful. I think this is best expressed in the world of martial arts, where Say, for example, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, in pretty much all of the internal martial arts, a movement will come from the core. You know, you move from your core in martial arts because it's a lot more powerful. And there's many examples I can give in yoga as well. Moving from the core makes your core much stronger. It makes your arms and legs much stronger. But if you restrict the core, you have more tension and usually more pain. Now, the way this is expressed in the modern world goes back to the late 1980s when it was discovered that a healthy person, before moving to, say, grab a heavy object, will activate their transverse abdominus before they move. 
And so this became translated and passed to the modern popular world with the instructions, before you pick up a heavy object, you should draw your lower abdomen inwards. I think that's a fairly common instruction in in the modern fitness world. I think you've heard that one, haven't you? For sure. Pull your navel towards your spine. I've heard it many times. Many times. Now, that unfortunately became very misunderstood. And if the expression pull the lower abdomen as opposed to the upper abdomen is really taken to its full, you know, end result, is if someone maybe listening to this can touch their abdomen with their fingers and palpate it, palpate your abdomen and make it as soft as you can. It's important to be able to make any muscle totally relaxed for it to be functional. In other words, if you cannot relax a muscle, then it it is as useless as a muscle you cannot tense. So the ability to have a functional and strong core relates to your ability to be able to relax it as much as possible, then make it as tense as possible. And if you can't make it relaxed, if you can only make it tense, it's really as non-viable as having an abdomen which you can only have relaxed and you can't tense. So I'm asking the listener perhaps to try and sit or stand in a way where they can completely relax their abdomen and perhaps palpate with their fingers, put their fingers deep into their abdomen, you know, subject to not hurting themselves, of course. I mean, I can lie on my back, and I think you saw me have someone stand on my abdomen with a completely relaxed abdomen. I did. It was quite a spectacle. <laughs> so so <laughs> put your fingers into the soft abdomen above and below the navel. Then I'll ask the, the listener to draw their lower abdomen inwards without using their hands, just using their lower abdominal muscles. And someone who can do this really the way it was intended by the physiotherapists in Australia in the 1980s you should be able to do this without creating any tension whatsoever in the upper abdomen. Now, I can do this. Some people can do this. But 19 out of 20 people can't do this. And in fact, the attempt to draw the lower abdomen inwards for most people will just cause inhibition of the diaphragm and just add stress and stiffness to your physiology and your spine. Can I just pause you for a sec, Simon? Is pulling in the lower abdomen, which is the ideal as you describe it, is that the basic equivalent to doing mulabandha properly? Well, the thing is, that's part of the confusion of Western yoga in that people think that mulabandha or that each of the bandhas is purely one thing. And the bandha can have many different positions. So if we use the loose definition of bandha to be a lock, a lock is like saying a doorway or the entrance to a channel or the entrance to another region. And a doorway or a lock can have many different positions. It can be fully locked, partially locked, unlocked, fully open. So, you know, it can be basically a door which is open or a door which is shut, but they're both called a door. A lock which is locked or a lock which is unlocked can still be called a lock. And so bandhas have different positions. Essentially, they are co-activations or simultaneous 
muscle activation or tensing of the muscles on opposing sides of a joint complex. And you can do this in many different ways. And if the reader or the viewer, the listener rather, wishes to Google the word co-activation or co-contraction, that's more commonly used, you can find many physiotherapy articles where people co-contract or co-activate muscles around the lower trunk, around the knees, around the ankles, around the wrists. And I think even you can find physiotherapy papers talking about co-contraction around the shoulders. And these co-activations or co-contractions are analogous to the Indian term bandha. And these co-activations will give a sense of stability around these joint complexes, which can help if there is, say, laxity around a joint or weakness. But the main function of bandha is not really to do with stability. Because many people in the West think that mulabandha is going to help protect your lower back and make it more stable. That's what you often hear about bandha. But actually, the primary purpose of bandha is to act as a mudra. And so a mudra is an energy controlling technique or method or posture or movement. And when you read the old Hatha Yoga texts and it lists the mudras, It says, for example, in one text, there are 32 main mudras, and it lists them. Mudras such as Nabo Mudra, Kachari Mudra, Maha Mudra. And then it says, Mula Bandha, Udhyana Bandha, Jaladhara Bandha. So the bandhas are actually subsets of mudras, which are energy-controlling processes. So you can make a Mula Bandha in a way which acts like a lock, that prevents blood flow from the region of the heart to the legs. And so if you activate Mula Bandha in one way, blood flow to the legs is inhibited. And in that case, heart rate will increase in order to try and push blood into the legs. But another type of Mula Bandha will open the doorway or gateway to the legs and allow you to get increased blood flow to the legs while co-activating the muscles around the trunk in a way where blood flow is enhanced, but heart rate does not go up. And so in that case then, when you say, what is mulabandha? There are many different types of mulabandha. And one of them includes activating the transverse abdominus and the lower abdominal muscles. But there are other ways of doing it as well. You know, you've sort of alluded to this issue, which I've heard you talk about before, which is even if you're doing something that is supposedly anatomically sound, like you're activating the bandhas while you're doing, you know, a series of sun salutations, then you can still encounter problems because even if it's anatomically sound, what you're doing on a physiological level is you're putting your body into a state of fight or flight, activating your autonomic nervous system versus your parasympathetic nervous system. And I'll just, your sympathetic, excuse me, versus parasympathetic. And so I'm just wondering if you can kind of elaborate on that idea for people who haven't heard it before, because I know we talk a lot about yoga anatomy, but we often don't talk a lot about physiology. And I remember when you first said this to me, I found your perspective very interesting. If you tell someone to tighten a muscle 
and they make a conscious choice to activate a muscle. Most people will over-tighten and tighten other muscles as well. Part of this is because people are not that good at controlling their muscles consciously, and also part of it is to do with the nature of how muscles work. So as an example, if someone wants to tighten their biceps, the brachialis, you know, the bulging biceps that people make when they sort of want to look like their arms are strong, you know, most people know the biceps. If they just flex their muscles, or what people call flex their muscles, and define the biceps muscle, they think they're just tightening the biceps, but actually they're tightening triceps at the same time. And you can do this by putting yourself into the typical position of tightening the biceps where people usually make a closed fist, bend their elbow and tighten the biceps. But if you relax the biceps and feel your triceps, the muscle underneath the, the, then biceps activation causes triceps activation as well. And you can do the same thing with your buttocks. If you were to simply stand and come to your, you know, lean on your left leg and then lean, take the other hand on your right buttocks. You come to the toe tip of your right leg and lean on your left leg and then tighten your buttocks. Then if you do that, you're not really just tightening the buttocks. You'll also be tightening some hip flexors as well. So maybe I could invite the listener to stand on the left leg, come to the right toe tip, Feel the right buttocks. Bring your right foot just behind you into hip extension. And then feel the right buttocks and tighten, clench the right buttocks. We think we're just tightening the buttocks. But if you relax for a moment and then take your right hand on the right groin, the front of the right hip, and now tighten the right buttocks again, you will usually feel tension in the front of the right hip as well. So those are two examples where you think you're tightening one muscle, but usually you're also tightening the opposite muscle again. I'll put it another way, that, and this way is a bit more gross, but often if you tell a class of people to tighten their anus or their anal sphincter, many people's face visibly becomes tense. And often that's what happens. When you ask them to tighten any muscle, their face becomes tense. Whereas if you... Say to someone, do an activity, then the activity will usually generate a muscle activity and they won't become tense as much. So say, for example, you just simply ask a person to pick up a light object with their hand. As they're picking up that object and bending their elbow, their biceps is active, but the triceps is not. If you ask a person to simply squat halfway down and move their hips backwards, that will activate their gluteus muscles, their hip muscles, without feeling tense. If they were to, say, for example, be asked to stand with their legs straight and pull up their kneecaps, which will activate their knee extensors or quadricep muscle, then this also is something which will tend to cause tension inside their body with the attempt to do it. But if you simply ask a person to lean on their left leg, take their right toe tip onto the floor in front of their body, 
and then lift the right leg off the floor. So you're balancing on the left leg, but lifting the right leg even a little bit off the floor, then that's going to activate their quadriceps and effectively make them pull up their kneecap. But if you tell them to stand on both legs and pull up the kneecap, that will make them consciously tighten the muscle. And conscious tightening of any muscle usually causes tension, a tension which is felt on the inside of the body. And subconsciously, I believe this will cause them to activate a bit more of a flight-or-fight response, whereas simply making them do something doesn't. There's many examples I could do of this much easier if I show someone. But basically, if you tell someone to do something and just say, do the activity, but stay relaxed, the activity that they're doing usually will activate muscles. But if you tell them to tighten muscles, they will more likely become tense. That's the simplest thing that I can say. And that tension that they feel will cause the stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system. And is that, I know you've said modern yoga is too much tension, too much stress, too much breathing. Is that because a lot of the cues that instructors are giving in class revolves around tensing muscles or what exactly is inviting, such as the pulling the navel towards the spine or what is inviting this kind of, this tension? Yeah, it's it's part of it. It's a fairly complex issue if I have to go into its total depth. But whenever you say to someone, tighten a muscle, invariably, it's not that one muscle you'll be tightening, you'll be tightening others. And usually, the conscious activation of a muscle will also inhibit natural breathing. And once natural breathing is inhibited, you tend to enter a state of flight or fight. It's also that when you stretch muscles, initiate a flight or fight response, if you feel like you're stretching. If a muscle is lengthened and relaxed, it will not feel like so much of a stretch as a muscle that's lengthened and tense. And what tends to happen, if someone comes into a passive stretch, then a passive stretch will initiate a stretch reflex, and it will make that muscle unconsciously tense up. And so what we normally experience as a stretch is a muscle that's lengthened and tense. But if you can work out a way of making that muscle lengthened but relaxed, it doesn't feel like nearly as much of a stretch. So the way you can make a muscle relax while lengthening it is by doing a movement actively. So the example that I used with you when I last saw you and with the group, and which can be easily shown to a group if you can show them easily, is to do with stretching the back of the legs. And so I can describe that and see if people can, can pick it up by listening to it. If you do a standing hamstring stretch, and I'll invite people to try this by standing and placing one leg in front of the other. So you're standing up, one leg forward, one leg back. Make your legs straight. And then keeping the legs straight without tightening any muscles and keeping your chin upright, put your hands on your thighs as if you're bending forward from the hips. And if comfortable, place your hands on the knee or maybe the shin or if possible, even the floor on either side of the right leg. And then what you sometimes feel with this, what most people feel is a sense of stretching the back of the right leg. 
And, you know, unless you're very, very cold, unless you're very, very warm, rather, if your body's not warmed up, you'll feel a stretch. But that stretch is coming as part of a stretch reflex where the back of the leg is primarily being lengthened via the force of gravity dropping your body onto the thigh. And now if you bend the knee and stand back up, and we do the same position, but this time instead of using gravity to flex at the hip or to bend forward at the hips, we use the muscles that flex the hip. So for this exercise, now we use the same leg, the right leg, but now it may be a good idea for most people to hold on to a wall or a chair or use something to hold on to, and then lean on the left leg and lift up the right leg into the air. So it's coming up in front of you, so the right leg is lifted in front of you, but don't try and tense the muscles. Just simply lift the right leg into the air so the right knee is straight and the right hip is flexed at the hip. So you've got the um, right leg straight, extended, but it's becoming straight by virtue of the knee extensors. The right hip is becoming flexed by virtue of the hip flexors. So if you were to touch your thigh now, you'd feel the front of the hip is active, the front of the knee is active, but because you're consciously choosing to do this position, because your body is doing it, you can relax everything you don't need. You can relax your toes, you can relax your abdomen, you can relax your shoulders, and I suggest you do that. So it'll feel like you're doing something, but you can pretty much breathe naturally and relax everything. If you simply hold this position, lifting the leg as high as you comfortably can while trying to focus on being relaxed, the muscles at the front of the knee will send a reflex signal via the spine to say, we're trying to straighten the knee, please try and relax the back of the knee. The muscles at the front of the hip becoming active will say, we're trying to straighten, we're trying to flex the front of the hip, can you relax the muscles at the back of the hip? And then if you just do this for 30 seconds or a minute, and then put the right foot back on the floor and go back to your typical hamstring stretch, where you keep your chin up, but bend forward at the hips and take the hands on the thigh or the shin or the floor in front of the feet or to the either side of the right foot, it'll feel much easier to bend forward. So if people try this, most people will feel suddenly more flexible and suddenly less feeling a stretch in the back of the leg. And then I invite the listener to now try this on the second leg. So then on the second leg, if you lean onto your right, if you step your left leg forward and take the legs maybe about a meter apart, left foot forward, right foot back, lift the chin, relax your legs and bend forward at the hips using gravity, this left leg will feel very, very stiff because now again you're bending forward with a gravitational assistance and then bend the knee, stand back up and now compare that. If you lean on the right leg, Take the left foot in front of you, come to the left toe tip. Maybe hold a chair or a table or a wall for support to assist your balance if you need it. And then lift the left leg up in the air a few centimeters. And if it's comfortable to keep the leg straight but relaxed, lift the leg up higher. Try and keep the hips level. It helps if you turn your left thigh out slightly. And then check that you're relaxed. So to check you're relaxed, check that your toes can comfortably move. Your shoulders can comfortably move. Your neck doesn't feel stressed. You might move that a little bit gently. Check that your spine is lengthened, but you can still breathe comfortably into your abdomen. So you're not trying to tighten your abdomen. You're not trying to tighten any muscles. And do this for maybe 30 seconds or a minute. 
And once you've spent a few moments extending the right knee, flexing the right hip, or in English we say straighten the left, sorry, straighten the left knee, extend uh, and, and flex at the, the left hip. So your left knee is straight, your left hip is flexed, you're holding it in the air for a few moments, and now put it back on the floor, bend forward at the hips without trying to tense muscles, and you'll feel now that the back of the left leg, your hamstring, feels a lot more flexible. And provided you understood my instructions and I was clear with that, and I think I was, if you can visualize what I was saying and try it, you'll find that the active movement of lifting the leg in the air to flex the hip and straighten the knee gave a lot more flexibility in the back of the leg without the feeling of stretching. And that is pretty much what a traditional yogi would do. They would lift up the leg like that and put their leg behind their head rather than taking the hand and pulling their leg behind the head. Or like we in the West will fold forward at the hips with gravity. What I asked you to do just then was to lift up the leg against the flow of gravity, which means it's an active movement. And that facilitates a sense of flexibility without feeling stretchy. It facilitates a sense that you're strengthening your legs while focusing on being relaxed. It facilitates blood flow. So anyone trying that exercise probably felt warm after doing it, but the heart didn't race to do it. And it facilitates the ability to do something which does not involve the conscious thinking about tensing muscles, but yet the muscle became active. So I say it generally causes the body to become intelligent without having to think about it. And all in all, this means less stress, but more blood flow, less sense of tensing muscles, yet the body is getting stronger while focusing on relaxing, less sense of stretching muscles, yet the body became more flexible without a sense of stretching. And this will likely facilitate a parasympathetic response, that sense of calming and rejuvenation and resting, which is sometimes called parasympathetic nervous system response, to be the rest, rejuvenation, relaxation response. As opposed to when you feel a stretch, stretch is the step just before pain. And pain is the step just before injury, if you stretch muscles to that level. But if you come into a movement and it doesn't feel like you're stretching, the body doesn't feel threatened. So you're more likely to stimulate parasympathetic response, whereas if you feel stretch, you're more likely to stimulate sympathetic response, which is the body's flight or fight response, which will come on when the body feels perhaps threat. Like, oh, it's stretching. Oh, the next step's going to be pain. Oh, oh, the next step could be injury. So the body enters this cautionary phase doesn't feel safe. In other words, you feel a stretch, your body thinks, well, I better be careful. I might tear something. Same with what you're saying there is it's coming up right against an instruction that we often hear in yoga classes. And I'm glad you mentioned this. I actually just had this discussion recently with a guy on the show who is a yoga teacher named Jay Brown, and he would be very much in agreement with you. And Jay talks about how this language around playing your edge you know, finding where your edge is. And Jay finds it to be very problematic, you know, and doesn't encourage people to go to your edge. And from what I'm hearing from you right now, and I remember this from training with you as well, going to your edge isn't somewhere where you encourage people to go. I remembered you often saying, you know, go 80%. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about why that's the case. People are living in a world where 
it's a funny world that perhaps comes from Western-based cultural heritage of no pain, no gain. There is no free lunch. This Protestant work ethic, this if you're good, you're going to go to heaven. If you're bad, you're going to go to hell. Or if you're some sort of, uh, you know, maybe in, in some cultures, it's this, uh, if you have a good life this time, you'll come back with a better life next time or this sort of thing, you know. But if you, have a, if you do bad things in this life, you'll come back in a worse life. You'll come back as a cockroach in the next life or something like this. Whereas really, this is all a punishment reward system and people think that it's all about later and not about now. It makes more sense to work in a way that you're actually enjoying the journey, not the goal. But the way our life has been programmed is it's all end goal orientated. So people are reluctant to buy the idea in the Western world of yoga that we're doing it for the sake of doing it rather than doing it for an outcome such as flexibility or strength or a better life in the future. Clearly, yoga is about being in the present moment and enjoying the journey, not the end goal. But most people don't work that way. Most people actually, if you have them in a yoga class and you give them an exercise, commonly people say things like, I'm not even getting a stretch with that pose. Good. It's best if you're not. But people think they're being ripped off if they're not. It doesn't feel very tense. The weight's not heavy enough. I can't feel it. Their idea of feeling it is it's got to be uncomfortable. It's got to be painful. And if it is uncomfortable and painful, then they think they're doing something good for themselves. Does this strike a chord? Is this familiar? It definitely does. I would also say the other thing I hear a lot is um, around people getting a sweat and I'm wondering if you could talk about this. I, I've heard some people say recently, like Jamie kind of made the argument. He he basically said, you know, I only used to do yoga for fitness. And I've come to kind of recognize that I don't think viewing yoga as my only source of fitness is necessarily a great thing. And now I do lifting weights and he, he does, you know, bicycling, he does other things. And yoga to him is more of a contemplative practice. And I'm wondering if you could could kind of talk about that and the desire people have for sort of yoga as fitness. Yeah. Well, it's funny because th there is this perception that there is exercise you have to do, and there's also a need to do something meditative or contemplative or relaxing. So many people will do two disciplines. They'll do their meditative, relaxing discipline, and sometimes they choose yoga for that, and they make it very relaxing, not too much stretching, not too much tensing maybe, or not too much tensing but some stretching, and more passive. And then they do their fitness exercise where they stretch more, they strengthen more, tense muscles more, they get their heart rate up and breathe more. And so this is then breaking it into two parts. You have your exercise and your meditation or exercise and your yoga, which is more meditative like this chap that you're talking about. Whereas my feeling is that you could get both at the same time. I believe that the healthy person, someone who say, visualize, I invite the listener to visualize the Olympic gymnast, for example, who might be doing something like a rhythmic gymnastic routine, which might include maybe 
doing, say, 10 backflips in a row, a few no-handed cartwheels, maybe a couple of triple flips in the air, landing in the splits, then from the splits, flipping over and doing sort of some other, you know, might be a scorpion leg to the head and maybe finishing with a leg behind the head position and balancing on one arm, standing up and then just calmly walking away. And as they walk away, you might notice that they're not sweating, they're not, no heart racing, no panting, and they did the position so easily that it didn't look like they were really feeling a strong stretch. Yet they were clearly doing things which involved tremendous flexibility, tremendous strength, coordination, and fitness. But the fact that they didn't look like they felt like they were stretching or didn't look like it caused any phasing because it wasn't looking like it was pushing them to themselves to their maximum, and it didn't look like it made their heart race or their breath pant, that says they must be very flexible, strong, healthy people. But in the Western mindset, we hear all the time, got to get your heart rate up. You've got to breathe more. You've got to really get your heart rate going if you want to be fit. But clearly, fit people run fast, hardly breathe at all, hardly make their heart beat at all. That's why we call them fit. Unfit people walk slowly, breathe a lot, and make their heart race a lot because they're unfit. What is it that fit people do that makes them fit? What is it that fit people do that allows them to be strong without feeling tense and allow them to be flexible without stretching? Part of that is repeating the exercise many times, but part of it is the way they're doing it. And the super yogi is the person who is flexible and strong, who you might even see a picture of sitting in a position, maybe like a lotus position or even a cross-legged position, on top of a mountaintop. And when they're sitting there cross-legged, it doesn't look like they're stretching. It doesn't look like they're tensing muscles. It doesn't look like they're making their heart race, and it doesn't look like they're breathing much. Yet they are generating enough energy and their blood is circulating well enough to actually melt the snow around them. And so meditation in the West is often not considered the same thing. Meditation and yoga are often considered two different things. The typical Western meditator sits in what usually ends up being a very uncomfortable position that makes their legs numb. If the room is cold, they will cover themselves with a blanket. They will often stand up very carefully after meditating cross-legged because their knees are numb, their back is stiff and sore. This is patently not the meditation the yogi is doing on the hill in uh, India or Tibet or southern China. Those people are sitting in a very comfortable position that they can easily jump up mm -hmm. out of after having been still for an hour. So it's not like a strong stretch. It doesn't cut blood flow. It actually enhances blood flow. Whatever they're doing is different to what most Western meditators are doing. And these people are clearly strong and flexible. So something's amiss. Is there a way we can get flexible without stretching? Is there a way we can get strong without feeling tense? Is there a way we can become uh, enhancing our cardiovascular system and making blood flow, improving circulation without making the heart race? And I'll say there is a way. 
if you can do what traditional yogis do, but without overdoing. Move actively from the core with natural breathing. Do it in a fluid way. Don't overstretch. Don't force yourself into positions the body doesn't choose to do. And then you find you get those things that I was suggesting, at least at the first stage. Flexibility without stretching, strength while focusing on being relaxed, blood flow without the heart racing, and a sense of intelligence coming to the body without having to overthink it, as many people do while trying to do difficult positions in, say, the you know, classes where alignment is important and you focus on instructions, which can get very complex. You know, a simple posture like triangle position often is overthought in some classes where you might get instructions like pull up the kneecap, press on the front of the right foot while turning the right foot out while lifting the outer right foot, turn the left thigh in while lifting the inner left foot, push the sitting bones down while moving the top of the hips back and lengthening the lower back, turn the navel toward the left, toward the ceiling while turning the left thigh toward the floor. It becomes an overthinking head trip. And not that those instructions are wrong, but most beginners, if they were to receive those instructions, would find it just completely frazzles their brain. Yet if they weren't to receive those instructions, they'd probably get the posture wrong. So I'm suggesting that simple postures, supposedly simple postures, like the triangle position, are actually too complex, too difficult for the average person to get effective yoga from unless they make a lot of thinking and a lot of conscious muscle activation. And a lot of the postures, if you didn't think them, if you didn't activate the muscles consciously and follow a line with instructions, then you risk just damaging the body or making the posture very ineffective. And so this is part yeah. of what I think. I think one big thing about your practice, Simon, that makes it so effective at – providing sort of making it dynamic, increasing blood flow, making us feel more energized without making people feel more exhausted is the fact that you don't have a lot of these quote-unquote closed-chained exercises where you're really going up and down using the floor, you know, like sun salutations, things like that. It's requiring a lot more exertion. Obviously, Gravity is not taking you into the pose, which is a big part of it. But you're really having these in active movements, as you would say, where you're having to use, you know, energy, but not too much force to bring you into these different movements. And I'll definitely say that it made me feel much more energized and much more calm with a lot less stress. And, and one thing that I think was so crucial to this and that you really inspired me to study afterwards was more Qigong. And I, I'm wondering, I'm mindful of your time here, but I'm, I'm wondering if just for the last part of our talk, you can discuss how learning Qigong influenced your practice and how incorporating Qigong into what you teach has really transformed the practice that you teach and, and how you've noticed that difference in your students. I've had a few different teachers from India. I've had many, some from Tibet and some from China. And I still study with a Chinese man, Jen Huayang, who I respect immensely and I think has a lot of talent. But he's shown me some Qigong. And I see that Qigong and yoga have at the root the same principles. It's just that most people practicing modern yoga talk about prana, but they actually overstretch 
and over-tense so much that they block prana. And in that way, then, they not only block prana, but they make the exercises stressful and potentially dangerous. But that stress can actually excite people because it stimulates adrenaline, endorphins, etc., which some people like. And the problem is it's potentially dangerous and it doesn't actually give you prana. It blocks it the way most people do it. Now, most Qigong taught in the West is perhaps as ineffective in some ways as most people's Western yoga. Because, of course, real yoga masters take decades to learn their trade, and that's the yoga masters of India. And similarly, real Qigong masters take decades to learn their trade in China. So many times, if Qigong is taught by Westerners and learned only for a very brief time, then the Qigong practices talk about qi in the same way that Indian yoga talks about prana. And what often happens is Qigong practitioners in the West talk about qi, but they don't actually move the qi because they don't know the secrets of how to move the qi. Some do, but not significantly. But the good thing about Qigong is that they're less likely to overstretch and overtense. Their movements are a lot gentler, slower, a lot more active, but often they miss the idea of moving from the core and miss the um, subtle details that make the practice work. Now, I've been lucky that I've had good teachers who have shown me this, but what it really made me realize was that Qigong and yoga at their roots are the same thing, and that a person who understands energy flow call it qi in China or prana in India, could do a practice which could be called yoga in India or qigong in China and make it look exactly the same. That's what I came to after many years. And I'm no yoga master or qigong master, but I'm seeing that most people in the West talk about prana and block it and risk physical damage. And many people teaching qigong in the West talk about qi, and they don't actually move the qi, but at least they're doing something safe for their body. But they are moving in a way that's more likely to move qi and less likely to damage their body by overstretching and overtensing. But many people who attempt qigong or things like tai chi in the West, often because it doesn't stimulate a flight or fight response, many people who are used to strong exercise go, oh, this is boring. This is not exciting. I'm not getting my heart rate up. And then they don't continue the exercise, don't persist in it. Except for those, of course, who practice Qigong or Tai Chi in their martial forms. And when you practice them in their martial forms, then you're more likely to appreciate what energy is. You know, my, my teacher from China once laughed and he said, you know, the people who do Western yoga often talk about the energy from the third eye center. And he said, but usually they don't have energy. And he said, if they had energy, they'd be able to do this. And with his forehead, he broke a brick. And he said, that's demonstrating energy coming out of your third eye center. If all you can do is talk about it, you're not really having energy. 
Whereas energy should be felt and manifestable. You should be able to do things with it. Simon, this is fascinating. I know we could talk for hours, but we've been going for about 90 minutes. So I'm conscious of that and and want to give you a chance to sleep where you are late in Japan. But before I let you go, I want to give you an opportunity where you can let folks know about, you know, your upcoming trainings or courses or workshops or anything else. Thank you. I appreciate that. You can get me online. I have yogasynergy.com, which is the company that I run and formed with my co-director, Bianca Matchless. Both of us are exercise-based physiotherapists. We, of course, began practicing and teaching yoga, and I actually taught for 10 years before I became a physiotherapist. And so I think that's important to note. But you know, we did take a lot of time studying, and for this we formed the Yoga Sinity System, which is, in our opinion, traditional yoga for the modern body. And although we have Yoga Sinity sequences, the practice of Yoga Sinity can be applied pretty much to any yoga form. And I think I'm able to actually apply it to pretty much any exercise form now as well. And so I'm happy to help any system. Or you can learn the systems that that we've developed, the sequences we've developed, and I teach these around the world. We have 200-hour trainings, which you can also call teacher trainings, although I prefer to call them intensives. And then the descriptions of when and where are described on yogasynergy.com. I also have simonborgolivia.com showing my calendar and also you can get me on Facebook as Simon Borgolivia and on Instagram as Simon Synergy and if you like there's lots of written information on our websites and YouTube channels but if I had to finish and conclude maybe I might just conclude by saying that if someone is practicing and wants yoga enjoy the journey don't look for the outcome Enjoy your life while you're doing it. Don't wait for an afterlife. Enjoy your practice. Make it feel good, not just after the practice. Make it feel good while you're doing it, not just after. But if it's really going to be good for you, it can't just feel good on one level. It's got to feel good physically, physiologically, and mentally. Physically means it's got to feel good in your muscles and joints. Physiologically means it must be good for your nervous system, good blood flow without the heart racing, good also for your internal organs. The hormones have to work well. And these are mainly the hormones of the parasympathetic nervous system, which will help you digest food, recover from the sickness, and reproduce your cells for long life. Um, And not the sympathetic nervous system, which turns off those systems. And so for this, stretch less, Tense less, breathe less, think less, but not just while doing nothing. You have to still exercise, move your body. Otherwise, the joints atrophy, blood doesn't flow. But when you exercise, when you move your body, move actively as the first place in the first instance. Move from your core rather than locking your core. In the beginning, fancy breathing inhibits most safe activity. So restore natural breathing, which is what BKS Ayenga taught, before you learn any fancy breathing. Learn to do an activity, a physical activity, in a way where you're breathing naturally before you try any fancy breathing. And also learn to move fluidly. 
which I discuss on my blogs and in my trainings at much greater length, because I think you have to see that rather than just hear about it. And when you do this, you find you can enjoy your practice, enjoy your life, and really look after your body while you're practicing. And then this gives you a signal, a system for which you can model your life. You can help other people enjoy their lives and look after their bodies. But if while you're practicing, you're just creating stress and tension, then the message you give yourself subconsciously is stress and tension. And that's the message you pass across to other people. So I believe the ultimate meaning of yoga is to recognize that we're all connected as one family, that the earth is one with its people, with the universe, with each other, and we're all connected. But to make this a realization that you can really share with others, it has to start with you on your mat. Make every cell of the body treat each other the same way a mother treats a young baby, in a loving way, in a nurturing, supportive, generous, giving way, in a way where all the cells communicate lovingly. I think of yoga to be the sharing of energy and loving information inside your body. It sounds soppy, it sounds sick and simple, but if I had to say it scientifically, I'd say encourage blood flow without your heart racing. Encourage a parasympathetic state rather than sympathetic. But the way to do this, you have to see how traditional yogis move and how they come into poses. Not go for the final position, but how they move in the position which is actively from the core. To say more without showing you would be difficult, and hopefully that was a little summary. That was a beautiful note on which to end. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very much, Adrian. It's a pleasure to talk with you. And I've never actually had an interview like this, which for me is very special, because the last time I talked to someone, they were someone who heard me say, tense less, stretch less, breathe less, feel energy and loving information flow through the body. But when they heard me say, tense less, stretch less, breathe less, they said, oh, no. They said, it sounds nice when you said, make loving energy move through the body. But if you say, tense less, stretch less, that means we're not doing yoga. And I go, no, no. Don't just sit, don't just sit on a chair and do nothing and tense less, stretch less. You have to learn to move in a way where it feels like you're not stretching, but you get flexible feels like you're not tensing muscles, yet you get stronger. feels like your heart's not racing, but blood is flowing. And that I can't give over the telephone. They are the secrets of real, which you can share really only one-on-one or in a, in a training, which I'd love to share with anyone listening. I really enjoyed sharing with you when we had a month together, and I really hope we can meet again to do some more because there's so much. Absolutely. I do too, Simon, and I have no doubt that it, we will uh, have that chance together one day. And I can honestly say to anyone listening that if you choose to study with Simon, it's not a decision you'll regret, that no matter how much you've been studying, you I guarantee you will learn a great deal and he will give you a lot to think about. So this was so much fun, Simon. I appreciate your time and I look forward to continuing the conversation and to meeting again. Bless you. Thank you so much. If yoga isn't fun, what's the point of doing it? If life isn't enjoyable, what's the point of being here? But the choice to make it enjoyable is always your own. Happiness is always a choice.